We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 28 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, March 30th, 2021, the day after one of the greatest single-game individual performances in NBA history, and the performance was authored by a Washington Wizard. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, that team, our team, which has an actual, tangible, real-life winning streak for the first time in more than a month. But how about Russell Westbrook on Monday night? First player in NBA history with at least 35 points, 20 assists, and 10 rebounds in the same game. A game in which he became the Wizards slash Bullets all-time leader in regular season triple-doubles. Monday night's game was just Westbrook's 38th game with the Wiz, and he's already the team's all-time leader in triple doubles. And this was not one of those, you know, empty Westbrook triple doubles in which he goes six to 22 from the field and has eight turnovers. This was an efficient, legitimate clutch triple double. Westbrook, a monster in the fourth quarter of what, yes, ended up being a Wizards win over the Indiana Pacers. Lots more on that to come, but hello and welcome aboard the Washington football team's newest weapon on offense. Receiver Adam Humphreys had his introductory Zoom press conference on Monday. Among the items he got into, the Fitzpatrick factor, the extent to which Ryan Fitzpatrick, with whom Humphreys played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, was a reason for Humphreys signing with Washington. We'll get into that and a whole lot more with Humphreys in just a bit. Our guest on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, sports business insider John Alrand of Sports Business Journal. He's as plugged in as anyone when it comes to sports television. And I wanted to have John on to discuss the NFL's 
new mega money national television deals. In 11 a year, $113 billion package. That works out to about $10.3 billion per year. The NFL under its previous national television deals making about $5 billion per year. So the NFL in this cord-cutting pandemic landscape more than doubled its national television money. Just amazing. What does this tell us? What does this mean for the future of the NFL salary cap? And you're going to hear John discuss the never-ending saga that is the Masson dispute. Why truly has Masson been cutting costs? And what truly do the Nationals ultimately want out of the Masson mess? Speaking of the Nats, Major League Baseball's exhibition season finally, thankfully, mercifully is over. Uh, that's about enough of that. And these games that mean nothing and these games that can end in ties. Uh, opening day, now just two days away. I'll go through who did well and who struggled for the Nats during their Grapefruit League season. And I'll talk plenty of Orioles as their season opening rotation is set. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Got this tweet from Revved Up. Wow, your episode notes are the best episode notes of any podcast that has episode notes. Thank you. Very detailed descriptions. This makes it so much easier for the listener who wants to quickly jump to a discussion slash topic they find the most interest in. I tell you what, Revved Up, uh, I appreciate that you appreciate the episode notes. Yes, they are detailed. I will grant you that. And sometimes I'm like, man, aren't you making these things a little too long and doing a little too much with them? And maybe I am. Maybe I am. But, you know, that's kind of just how I am, all right? I'm a little bit process-oriented, as one of our favorite quarterbacks once said. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, thank you, Kirky. But as a podcast listener myself, because like Cy Sperling with the Hair Club for Men, I'm not just the president, I'm also a client. I can't stand it when I want to listen to a podcast and I want to listen to a specific thing and I have no idea when that thing comes up. You know, these like generic two, three sentence descriptions of podcasts. What good does that do you beyond just saying, hey, they talk about this. Okay, well, when? Like, uh, you know, who's got time to listen to four hours of podcasts and, and, you know, comb through, okay, do they do it here? Do they do it there? So it's like, no, I try to make it easy because everyone's different with how they listen, right? Like, I mean, I have thousands of people downloading this podcast every day and I appreciate that so much, but you know, some people listen to the whole thing, no matter what, some people only listen for certain topics. Like maybe you're a Washington football team fan and you couldn't care less about the Capitals. Maybe you're a huge Caps fan and you couldn't care less about the Washington football team. Like we have all kinds of ways that people like sports, follow sports, consume sports, in this area. So I make it easy for you. That's what the episode notes are for. So revved up. Thank you for thanking me uh, for the episode notes. All right. Lots to cover on this installment of the Al Goldie podcast. And yes, I will note all of those various topics in the episode notes. Uh, but first, Washington's newest receiver has spoken. So all does remain quiet on the free agency front with the Washington football team. That doesn't mean that Washington isn't speaking with free agents, isn't actively trying to sign more free agents, but we're just not hearing much right now. So either the team isn't leaking anything, which by the way would be a very good thing, or the team is just letting the market marinate for a bit. You know, we're clearly into the second wave of free agency now. Washington very clearly still has a major need at linebacker, still is a major need for cornerback depth, still is a major need for tight end depth. So we'll see where free agency takes us. But since the announcement on Friday of Washington signing 
the corner, Daryl Roberts, who we talked about on Monday's podcast. There just hasn't been much, if anything at all, about the Washington football team in free agency. In the meantime, Adam Humphreys spoke on Monday, had his introductory Zoom press conference. So Washington last Thursday evening officially announced the signing of Adam Humphreys, an unrestricted free agent receiver. Contract reportedly is for just one year. 2021 season going to be Humphreys' age 28 season. Why did he sign with Washington? Yeah, um, I think, you know, after, you know, doing some due diligence with my agent and myself, I think, you know, talking with Scott Turner and some of the offensive staff, it it just seemed like a good fit. You know, um, we needed a a true slot receiver. Um, That's something I can bring to this team. And um, just just flying up to Washington and meeting all the guys um, around the building, it just seemed uh, like a good atmosphere and a good culture that I wanted to be a part of. So um, I'm excited about the opportunity. And he's going to have opportunity here, no doubt. Adam Humphreys is set to be Washington's top slot receiver in 2021. He is a classic slot receiver, listed as being 5'11". Last season for the Tennessee Titans, over 227 offensive snaps. He lined up in the slot 189 times per roto-wire, 83.26% of Humphreys' offensive snaps in 2020 out of the slot. There ain't no mystery about what Adam Humphreys is. He's a short white receiver, okay? Those guys are almost always slot receivers, and that's what Adam Humphreys has been, and that's what Washington has brought him here to be. As we discussed last Friday off this Humphreys signing, this is not good news at all for Steven Sims, okay? Steven Sims had that promising rookie season in 2019, especially the final month of that season. Last season, very disappointing for Steven Sims. He dealt with injury. He dealt with a bunch of drops. He struggled big time on punt returns. You know, I'm not going to completely write the guy off because I do think Steven Sims has talent. And like I said, December of 2019, the guy was productive. It's hard to just erase that from your mind, but he had a very disappointing second season. Adam Humphreys is experienced. Adam Humphreys has gotten the job done. And Adam Humphreys has excelled in a spot where you need to excel these days in this past happy NFL and that is the slot. Here was Humphreys on Monday on how the slot receiver role has grown in recent years. Yeah, it, it's it, it has been a, a good time to be a slot. Um, I think the our you know um, appreciation and, and the use that we've been getting and the ways the offensive have been um, you know developing over the past few years. I remember you know just laying on my couch watching uh, New England versus LA um, in, in in Atlanta for that Super Bowl and. You know, the way the Patriots were using Edelman, you know, inside just on, you know, so many options just to break in, out, sit down. Um, there's just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a certain skill you have to have to be able to make those decisions quickly. And it, it's something that's very, can be very useful, um, as a check down or an outlet for the quarterback. So, you know, I've, you know, been able to find that niche in the slot and, uh, you know, I'm continuing to, to, to build and, and, and grow each and every year and, and try to master that. So Washington in the 2020 regular season per Roto-Wire had six players who each lined up in the slot on at least 100 offensive snaps. Logan Thomas, Terry McLaurin, Steven Sims, Isaiah Wright, Cam Sims, and J.D. McKissick. And some of that did have to do with Steven Sims missing the time that he missed. He missed four games due to a toe injury. But this is the way the NFL is now. Like, guys line up all over the place. And so, you know, to say, like, when you say, well, someone is an outside receiver, well, yeah, maybe that's, like, how he's best utilized. But even outside receivers line up in the slot all the time. Like Terry McLaurin lined up in the slot quite a bit last year. Cam Sims lined up in the slot quite a bit last year. Going to be interesting if Adam Humphrey stays healthy. And that is an if because he's missed a lot of time over the last two seasons due to injury. 
But if he stays healthy, how much of that does lead to some of these guys we just referenced not being in the slot as often as they were? I mean, again, six different guys for Washington last season, each with at least 100 offensive snaps lining up in the slot. But there's no doubt having a quality slot guy matters a lot right now. The NFL obviously has become more of a passing league. So as you have had this phenomenon, as you've had the league becoming more passing oriented, you've had a growth in both three receiver sets and also in no huddle offenses, right? And so with more three receiver sets and more no huddle offenses leading to more offensive snaps, what you've gotten is a big boom in both slot routes and also in overall routes run. So that's why this whole thing of having a quality slot receiver is a thing. Whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't nearly as much of a thing. You know, it's interesting. I I like to look into stuff like this because, you know, so much of this happened before my time. But Al Davis is actually considered the pioneer of the slot receiver. You know, Al Davis, a lot of people make fun of the guy. And there's no doubt there were many things to make fun of him for, including, you know, the way he became in his later years. But Al Davis was revolutionary in terms of what he meant for the game of football especially for what he meant for offense in football. You know, vertical passing game, the importance of throwing the football, how throwing the football can totally change you from an offensive perspective, make you dynamic, make you explosive, make you entertaining, right? Because at the end of the day, the NFL is in the entertainment business. But Al Davis was a receivers coach for the Los Angeles last San Diego Chargers from 1960 to 62. The head coach at the time was Sid Gilman, who's known as the father of the modern passing game. And Davis gets credit for, like I said, essentially being like the pioneer for the slot receiver. And so as time has gone on here, having a quality slot guy has become a bigger and bigger deal. And we've seen so many people excel out of the slot in the NFL in recent years. You know, whether you're talking about a Wes Welker or a Julian Edelman, look, in Washington, we had Jamison Crowder for multiple seasons. And for at least a little while, you know, I'm thinking like 2015, 2016, he was really effective as a slot receiver. You really haven't had that since Crowder left. Now, again, you got production out of the slot last year because like I said, people like Logan Thomas and Terry McLaurin were lining up in the slot at least a decent amount last season. But wouldn't it be nice to deploy those guys maybe in a more ideal fashion and have a slot staple coming up in 2021? That's the hope with Adam Humphreys. So what about this Fitzpatrick factor, right? Adam Humphreys came into the NFL as an undrafted free agent out of Clemson in 2015 with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Played for the Bucs from 2015 through 2018, including in 2017 and 2018 with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick played in 14 games with 10 starts for the Bucs over those two seasons. And those two seasons have been Humphreys' two best seasons. In 2017, Adam Humphreys, over 16 games, had 61 receptions for 631 yards and a touchdown on 83 targets. In 2018, Humphreys, over 16 games, 76 receptions for 816 yards and five touchdowns on 105 targets. It's hard to ignore this, right? Adam Humphreys' two best seasons came with a good bit of Ryan Fitzpatrick at quarterback. Humphreys on Monday on reuniting with Fitz Magic. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, you know, Fitzy just makes, you know, coming to work every day fun. Um, you can tell, you know, he's got a lot of passion when he plays and he's got a love for the game that, um, you know, not many people have. And, uh, you know, he just, he just makes pl- uh, playing football fun. And, um, you know, he, he brings a, a good attitude towards every situation and, um, you know, he's, he's still slinging it. So, uh, excited to, to link back up with him and, uh, you know, have some fun. 
Yeah, and I don't want to overstate the extent to which Ryan Fitzpatrick was a factor in Adam Humphrey's signing with Washington. Guys sign with teams for two reasons. A, the money. B, the opportunity. Okay, so Adam Humphrey's got a deal that he liked, although we still don't know the financial terms of the deal. We just know that it's a one-year deal. But he got money that he found acceptable, and he's getting opportunity, right? Clearly, Adam Humphreys is set to be Washington's primary slot receiver. Could that change? Sure. You know, we still have an NFL draft to conduct, and it is a draft loaded at receiver. Maybe Washington finds itself getting someone who the team really likes a receiver, and that guy ends up being the slot. Maybe Steven Sims kills it come training camp in the preseason, and he ends up being the top slot receiver for the team this year. Who knows? But as things appear to be now, Adam Humphreys is going to be out there a ton in 2021. So money and opportunity, that's why you sign with a team. However, I don't think you just dismiss the idea of Adam Humphreys' two best seasons came with this guy playing a whole lot at quarterback and what that may have meant for why Adam Humphreys signed with Washington. And you hear the way Adam Humphreys talked about playing with Fitzpatrick, right? Fitzy just makes coming to work everyday fun. You can tell he's got a lot of passion when he plays. He's got a love for the game that not many people have. People really do like Ryan Fitzpatrick as a guy, as a dude, right? He's like, he's, he's a very popular teammate. Of course, he's had like a million teammates over the years because he's bounced around the NFL so much. But there is a genuine like for Ryan Fitzpatrick that, you know, you don't necessarily get with everyone. It's, it's not unlike what we had here with Alex Smith, where like everyone liked the guy. You get that same sentiment with Ryan Fitzpatrick. So more from Humphreys on Monday on Fitzpatrick. Humphreys on how much of a factor Fitzpatrick was in Humphreys signing with Washington. I, th- I think it was a, it was a big factor. Um, you know, like I said before, uh, my previous you know two years spent with Fitzpatrick was was some of the most fun I've had playing football in my career. And I, I think Ryan would, would tell you the same thing. I think I know he obviously had a good time with the other nine teams he played for. But I think, you know, when he came to Tampa, I think he found another love for the game. And, um, you know, he brought some excitement, um, you know, to myself as well. So, you know, the familiarity there between, you know, Ryan and myself, you know, it definitely played a factor in uh, my decision. But um, again, like I said, stepping into a good situation um, with this team and, um, you know, they've got a lot of young pieces and a lot of, a lot of guys that very talented, and I'm just excited to to be another part of that piece. So how about this with Adam Humphreys? He's actually had some of the best games of his career against Ron Rivera. Some of Humphreys' best games have come against the Carolina Panthers with Rivera as head coach. And it's always kind of tricky with something like this because, I mean, it would be pretty foolish to sign someone just because he's done well against you in the past. Like you sign someone because you feel like he's a good fit for what you're doing now, not because he did things against you years ago. But it is kind of hard to ignore this, right? And you got to feel like this at least played somewhat of a role in Ryan going after Adam Humphrey. So in 2016, week 17, in a 17-16 Tampa Bay win over the Panthers, Humphreys had 10 catches for 94 yards on 13 targets. 2018 season, Week 9, a 42-28 Bucks loss at the Panthers. Humphreys, 8 receptions for 82 yards and 2 touchdowns on 8 targets. And later in that 2018 season, Week 13, a 24-17 Bucks win over the Panthers. Humphreys, 7 catches for 61 yards and a touchdown on 9 targets. Ron Rivera, by and large, had good defenses with the Panthers. And yet Humphreys put up some numbers against those defenses. And during that three-season stretch there, 2016, 2017, 2018, had some big performances. Like I said, over two games in 2018, Adam Humphreys against Ron's Panthers, 15 catches, including three touchdown receptions. Adam Humphreys on Monday on why he had so much success against Ron's Panthers. I Honestly, uh, 
No idea. Um, it, it, it could be from, uh, growing up in, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, I used to go to Panthers practices at Wofford College, you know, pretty much my entire childhood. So uh, I remember, you know, going to Ron, Coach Rivera's practices and, and just being a fan <laughs> on the hill. So, um, I, I, whenever we played the Panthers, I knew everyone back home would be watching because it would be, you know, the local TV that was on. So maybe just a little chip on my shoulder. I'm just trying to, you know, impress the home crowd. I don't know, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I did have some, some good games against, you know, their defense and, um, you know, sometimes we won, sometimes we didn't, but it was always good to, to play good in front of the home crowd. And he played well a few times against Ron's Panthers. What about punt returns? We brought this up on Friday's installment of the podcast. Adam Humphreys also has served as a punt returner and a kickoff returner. Hasn't exactly been dynamic in those roles, but he has served those roles, especially the punt return role. Humphreys, over four seasons, 2016 through 2019, had 63 punt returns, averaged 7.98 yards per punt return, though he did not have any punt returns for touchdowns, and his longest punt return during that stretch went for just 25 yards. But look, the beggar shall not be a chooser. Washington was brutal on punt returns last season. All kinds of issues, not just in terms of yards per punt return, but in terms of ball security, right? Steven Sims had a real hard time catching and holding onto the football. Uh, Isaiah Wright had some issues as well. Here was Humphreys on Monday on if he will be returning punts for Washington in 2021. And you'll hear Adam reference the Washington special teams coordinator, Nate Katzer. Yeah. Um, you know, I actually sat and had, you know, probably 20, 30 minute conversation with Nate Katzer. Um, you know, I've had some experience with him in, in Tampa, but, um, you know, it was really just, just catching up. So, um, you know, it's something that I've done four or five years in the NFL and feel comfortable doing it. If it's something they need me to do, I can do it, but uh, it hasn't really been discussed yet. And you wonder how much Humphrey's recent injury history might play a role in whether he's on punt returns in 2021. Adam Humphreys with the Tennessee Titans over the last few seasons did not work out. He signed with the Titans in March 2019, but got released by Tennessee last month off him having played in just 19 games over his two regular seasons with the Titans. 2019, Humphreys played in just 12 regular season games, missed the Titans' final four regular season games, and then the Titans' first two playoff games, both of which were wins. Wins at the New England Patriots and Baltimore Ravens due to an ankle injury. And then in 2020, Humphreys played in just seven regular season games. He missed a game in October due to being on the Titans' reserve slash COVID-19 list, and then missed eight of the Titans' final nine regular season games and that loss to the Baltimore Ravens on Super Wild Card Weekend due to a concussion. So last two seasons, you're talking ankle injury, you're talking concussion. He's not been available, and that's one of the reasons why Adam Humphreys lingered on the free agent market, and that is absolutely something you've got to wonder about in terms of Humphreys and Washington in 2021. That's why you shouldn't just be too quick to just eradicate Steven Sims from the picture because you may need Steven Sims in 2021 if Adam Humphreys is having a hard time staying healthy. Humphreys on Monday on what he learned about himself in battling these injuries over the last two years with the Titans. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is a great time to, to sit back, reflect, um, you know, even going through the whole COVID situation, you know, it makes you appreciate some things that, um, you didn't have so much appreciation for when things were going so well. Um, so, um, you know, being injured in the league is, is not fun at all. Um, you know, walking into the building and, and not being able to, to sit in meetings and, and participate in practice, it's tough. Um, and, and again, like I said, it, it, it allowed me to see how much I do love playing this game and how much it means to me. So really attacking this offseason, you know, as hard as I can and, um, you know, just again, excited to 
to have another chance to, to play this game. And this is something to keep in mind with this Adam Humphrey signing. Washington bought low. They got a guy who's been productive, a guy who's had success with the guy who seemingly is going to be Washington's starting quarterback this coming season and Ryan Fitzpatrick, although we'll see on that. You know, I don't think anything's set in stone. But yeah, I mean, right now it certainly looks like Fitzpatrick will be the QB1 in 2021. But you get this guy Humphreys on a one-year contract coming off back-to-back injury plague seasons, but you know that the guy can play. We saw Washington do so well last offseason when it came to getting guys on bargain basement deals, right? Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick, Ronald Darby, Wes Schweitzer, Cornelius Lucas. No doubt the Adam Humphrey signing has the potential to play out in a similar way. Now time for our special guest. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Sports Business Insider John Alrand of Sports Business Journal, which is a must-read site if you want to understand the business of sports. John, it's great to talk to you again, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, Al. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Appreciate you coming on very much. So you had a really good piece that was published on Monday examining the unsung heroes in the NFL's new media rights deals, which come out to an 11-year, $113 billion package, works out to $10.3 billion per year, the NFL under its previous national TV deals making about $5 billion per year. We knew that the NFL was wanting to double its existing national television contracts, that the league actually ended up doing so and then some. Did that surprise you or not really? Yeah, it totally surprised me because uh, for several reasons. Um, uh, number one, the, the, the networks, the TV networks were um, negotiating against themselves. It's a, the, the NFL has... Two Sunday afternoon packages as a Sunday night package, and it has a Monday night package, and it, so that's four packages and has four networks, one one for each package, and so you know it, usually you need you need one more network in there in order to drive all the negotiating and get the price higher, and they didn't have that, and so the networks you know basically doubled what they were paying, and uh, in terms of an average annual value uh, of the contract. And, uh, and and I'm not saying that they didn't have to, but that, but it, it, that is surprising. And it comes at a time when these networks are losing subscribers. There are few fewer people that are uh, that are connected to cable and watching this on cable, and that's how a lot of them get get, get paid. And so the business isn't nearly as good as it was, say, like seven or eight years ago. The last time the NFL came to market with, with its rights, and so it's a, it, they came into a, a tougher marketplace with um, uh, with not as many bidders as they were hoping, and were still a- able to get that to happen. I, I found that to be a surprise. Uh, where I didn't find it to be a surprise, though, Al, is that the NFL is the most um, popular programming genre on television, bar none. Um, and that, that includes entertainment programming, includes all other sports programming, and and they are so much more popular than everything else out there that they're they, they are the one thing that all the networks feel like if they're in the TV business, they need to have a a, a hand in the NFL. It really is remarkable, you know, the NFL's national TV bubble continuing to grow at this insane rate. Is there any reason to believe that the bubble is going to burst anytime soon? Um, uh, no, I, I think it's not going to burst until 2033. Um, when, when these deals come up, uh, and, and I don't think it'll probably even, even burst then. I, I've been doing these stories for, you know, 
uh, a couple of decades now. And when I first started, everybody's talking about the bubble. When Fox came in, in, in 1994, Al, and, and, and took the NFC package away from, from CBS, everybody talked about that being a bubble, although there's no way anybody can make money off of this. And it's been going up ever since. It's been going up for all sports. I think that where you might see a bubble, because, uh, because really the, the TV networks are for-profit uh, companies, where you might see a bubble is with smaller to mid-size uh, leagues and conferences, uh, and, and they might not, uh, there's not going to be enough money to pay everybody everything, but for the top tier conference, uh, leagues like the NFL, uh, Power Five college football, um, uh, the NBA, uh, is in that. I think even baseball has shown that, that, that it's in that as well. Uh, they're, they're sitting pretty and, and, uh, if there's a bubble, then, you know, it's, it's a pretty elastic, a long lasting <laughs> bubble. Yeah, there's no question about that. Now, also part of this mix, of course, is the DirecTV Sunday ticket package. DirecTV's paying the NFL $1.5 billion per year contract set to expire after the 2022 season. What do you think is going to happen with that? And is that going to shoot up the way these national TV deals just shot up? Uh, I don't know if it is or not. Um, uh, right now, uh, that's coming up. Uh, uh, the NFL doesn't appear to be... Uh, enamored with DirecTV anymore. I mean, they launched this when the DirecTV launched. So DirecTV has been the only holder of these rights uh, going back to, I think, 1994, maybe, uh, um, when they first got these. And um, uh, right now, the betting is that one of the streaming services is going to swoop in and, and, and get them. And you, you have a lot of streaming services that want to do that, that, that need programming to sort of stand apart from each other and stand out from, from each other. So uh, NBC owns Peacock, CBS owns Paramount Plus, ESPN uh, with ESPN Plus. And then you have uh, other ones like, you know, Yahoo is still something that, that's available and out there and has, you know, deep pockets that, that, that could look into this. People I talk to, Al, they think that it's uh, not going to go to just one um, one source. It'll probably be spread okay. a, a bunch, uh, around a, a bunch. And uh, they're also very conscious about Sunday afternoon. Like Fox and CBS are both paying more than $2 billion per year um, for, for their rights. They want to make sure that, that, that if there's a Sunday ticket, the price point is going to remain very high. It's going to be a premium product. And, only the hardcore football fans are, are going to be uh, subscribing to it. So, of course, all of this impacts the NFL from a football standpoint in that the salary cap is based on league revenues. Cap was at $200 million for this past season. is down to $182.5 million for 2021, but everyone expects the cap to shoot back up in the coming years once these new media rights deals kick in, it, especially if by then we have legalized gambling revenue really starting to come in for the NFL what do you think we're looking at with the cap in the coming years, John? Like, are we looking at maybe like a $300 million salary cap sooner rather than later? Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to, I can't put a number on it because it will be so speculative. But I, I think that right now the, the league is looking at so many different areas of revenue growth. Um, and and they, they have, so every, everybody's talking about the, these TV deals and these TV deals are massive and are going to help. But they also have a bunch of really big um, sponsorship deals, you know, league sponsors that are up, that they're in the process of selling right now. And again, the NFL has proved 
uh, of all entertainment in America. It, it, it collects the biggest audiences just for its regular season games. The Super Bowl is always the, the, the by far uh, the biggest audience uh, on TV for the year, and that, that, that's going back for decades. So that they should make a pretty penny on sponsors because the overall ad market for sponsors has been. You know, so many people are going to Netflix. So many people are DVRing their shows and just fast forwarding through commercials. Like they, they want to be associated with something that people are watching in real time so they can get their messages out there. So that's open. And then you mentioned gambling too. That there, there wasn't a lot in, in, uh, with the media deals in terms of gambling, but that is clearly something that, uh, that uh, Commissioner Goodell has talked about. That's clearly something that Fox and CBS have talked about and, 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 uh, uh, NBC and ESPN as well. And there's a really big potential revenue stream, uh, there as well. So it's, it's more than just the, the TV revenues. The NFL is really sitting pretty from a business standpoint right now. Yeah, no doubt. We're talking with Sports Business Insider John Alrand of Sports Business Journal. Getting away from the NFL, we of course have Major League Baseball's opening day on Thursday. I, I want to get your take on what's going on with Masson. So we've been told that Masson is coming out finally with a means of streaming Nationals and Orioles games. I- I'm curious what you make of that. And also, what do you make of the drastic cost-cutting that's been going on at Masson? Uh, uh, right now, the, the, um, the market for regional sports networks is uh, not great. Uh, uh, just uh, around there, for, for the longest time, Masson, and then you have like Yes Network and Nesson up in, in Boston, they uh, they followed the rise of cable television. Uh, they... Uh, regional sports networks because, again, it, it collects rabid fans that are watching in real time and not, are not DVRing through commercials. So it, 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 it became uh, among the most expensive uh, channels on the cable system. And now that, that uh, you have cord cutting and you have cord nevers and, and, and cable um, uh, systems are losing subscribers, video subscribers are going down. I mean, cable's fine. They're making it up in broadband and whatnot, but video subscribers are dropping. It's it's hitting regional sports networks disproportionately. And so you have regional sports networks like Masson that are just, they're getting less revenue that's coming in from the cable systems. And so that's... When you take a look at the cost cutting that they have to do, that's uh, that's pr- pretty much why right there. And it's uh, I think one of the things that um, baseball is taking a look at, and all these media companies are taking a look at, is is with streaming and how they can get how they can get their games in front of the uh, young fans. Yeah. But do it do it in a way that doesn't really irritate or anger. The um, distributors, the cable systems, to the point where they say, "Oh, well, why are we paying for you if you're just like giving away the, the, the stream for free, or you're just selling the stream and, and people don't need us?" Right. There's a uh, that, that, that's a big push and pull that they have to go through. Yeah, it's a fine line you got to walk. So I'm curious then, with the Nationals and this never-ending Masson dispute that, of course, has been going on for years. What do you think the ideal end game is for the Nats? Is it simply just to get more money from Masson? Do you think it's for the Nats to strike a deal on their own with, say, like NBC Sports Washington? Do you think maybe it would be for the Nats to start their own cable network, even though, like you just said, it's not really a great time right now for these regional cable networks? What do you think the learners truly want out of this Masson dispute? I, 
I think the, the, what the learners really want is uh, control over their own rights, and and uh, and they want to be able to, you know, sort of uh, sell the rights on their own. Be it, uh, to NBC Sports Washington, be it to have Sinclair come in and, and start its own uh, regional sports network in, in, in the area, or be it to sort of like they they go and set up a streaming service and and. Uh, uh, sell the games directly to, to cable systems or something like that. They want to control their rights and and try to make uh, make the most va- get the most value out of those rights on their own, as opposed to the current situation where the rights are pretty much controlled by by the Orioles, and then they have to ne- negotiate within within a box to the Orioles, and it's a, it just uh, is, is something that they you know. Uh, I'm surprised it's gone on this long, to be honest. It's amazing how long the thing has gone on. One more for you, John, and I appreciate your time. The NHL going back to ESPN starting next season. Seven-year media rights deal, uh, NHL back on ESPN for the first time since 2004. I- I'm assuming this is good for the NHL or not necessarily? Uh, I think it's great for the NHL. Uh, the NHL, ESPN uh, is paying more money uh, to the NHL. So, you know, the, what I, how I answered that first question about the bubble. I mean, the bubble didn't hit, hit, didn't burst for the NHL uh, as they went to work. Um, and the, the deal is is really a unique deal because there's going to be so much on ESPN Plus, and there's going to be so much streaming, and there's going to be games on Hulu that are going to uh, um, be exclusive uh, to Hulu. Uh, and so the NHL deal is going to ensure that the playoffs and the Stanley Cup Finals. The Stanley Cup Finals are going to be on broadcast television. The playoffs are going to be on cable television. So that they're they're uh, on the platforms that attract the biggest audiences. But they are doing so much more in terms of streaming their sport uh, with uh, with ESPN Plus and with Hulu that uh, that make it a really forward thinking unique deal. I think it's a really good deal for the NHL. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, we know how this works with ESPN, right? When they have your deal, they will pay more attention to you. Like, we've seen how the ESPN has been all over the UFC since the uh, UFC and ESPN got in bed together. So I would think this is going to lead to a lot more coverage of the NHL on ESPN. That's something uh, over the years that NHL executives have talked about ad nauseum. They, they felt like they they were relegated to the uh, end of Sports Center, if at all. And yeah. now I think that they feel like they're going to be you know, front and center on that. Yeah, no doubt. John, great stuff, man. Really appreciate your time. All the best to you. Hey, Al, thanks for having me on, man. Going to be doing lots more on the Nationals coming up in just a bit. But first, our Wizards have an actual winning streak. The Wiz have their first winning streak in more than a month. Not since February 25th and 27th had our Wizards won back-to-back games. Until now, Saturday night, 106-92 win over the lowly Detroit Pistons at Capital One Arena. And on Monday night, the Wizards improved to 17-28, and a 132-124 win over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena. The Wizards win this game despite no Bradley Beal. He did not play on Monday night due to that right hip contusion that was suffered in that win over the Pistons on Saturday night. Wizards remained without Davies Bertans. He now has missed 
five consecutive games due to a right calf strain, but the Wizards won. And look, the Pacers aren't a great team. I get that. Uh, the Pacers did come into the game just 21 and 23, but Indiana had won four of five. And the Wizards, who, like we have been saying, haven't been winning like at all lately, made the winning plays down the stretch. Wizards in the fourth quarter on Monday night trailed at 116-110 with less than six minutes left, but then won the rest of the game 22-8. Look at our team making clutch plays down the stretch in the fourth quarter of a victory. And nobody had more to do with the Wizards winning on Monday night than Russell Westbrook. Another triple-double setting a new franchise record. Russell Westbrook tied the franchise record for career regular season triple-doubles on Saturday night. Russell Westbrook broke Daryl Walker's franchise record for career regular season triple-doubles on Monday night. Russell Westbrook now with 16 triple-doubles in just 38 games with the Wizards. Walker got his 15 triple-doubles over 283 regular season games for the Bullets over four seasons, 87-88 through 90-91. Westbrook gets his 16 triple-doubles over just 38 games. I mean, it really is amazing. And the thing about Westbrook's record-setting triple-double on Monday night was it was a true, legit triple-double. Westbrook was efficient, and Westbrook was clutch. He went 4-6 on threes, 10-20 on twos, 4 of 6 on free throws, finished with 35 points, 21 assists versus 4 turnovers, and 14 rebounds in 39 minutes, 18 seconds as a starter. Westbrook, per synergy basketball, created, assisted on, or scored 88 of the Wizards' 132 points. Westbrook came through when the Wizards needed him to come through. He, in a fourth quarter, the Wizards won 37-32, went 2-3 on threes, and 5-7 on twos, finished with 17 points, 4 rebounds, and 4 assists, versus 1 turnover in that fourth quarter, made 2 big threes, 2 pull-up threes, uh, over the final 2 minutes, 30 seconds. And like I noted at the top of the podcast, Westbrook became the first player in NBA history with at least 35 points, 20 assists, and 10 rebounds in the same game. There have been many triple-doubles over the years, but no one had ever had this kind of a triple-double, a 35-point, 20-assist, 10-rebound triple-double until Westbrook did it on Monday night. 35 points, 21 assists, and 14 rebounds. Heck, he became just the third player in NBA history with at least 30 points, 20 assists, and 10 rebounds in the same game. The other guys, Magic Johnson and Oscar Robertson. It's not hyperbole. You're not exaggerating. You're not overstating things if you say that Russell Westbrook on Monday night had one of the greatest games in Wizards slash Bullets history. And honestly, it's one of the great games in NBA history, okay? Now, obviously, it's not like a playoff game or an NBA Finals game or anything like that, but just in terms of individual achievement in a game, in terms of stat stuffing in a game, and obviously, this wasn't just stat stuffing because the Wizards won, and Westbrook, like I said, came through in the fourth quarter, but this was an all-timer. First guy in the history of the league with at least 35 points, 20 assists, and 10 rebounds. I got this tweet from Emmanuel Burwell. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. You think Westbrook a Hall of Famer? It's a great question. And the answer to me is yes. You know, and and, and I get the knocks on Westbrook. And look, I voiced the knocks on Westbrook. Like, I bring it up all the time. He isn't a great three-point shooter. He has committed too many turnovers this season. You can't ignore those things with Westbrook. But my God, these triple doubles, I mean, it's amazing. 
the frequency with which this guy authors triple doubles. Triple doubles are not easy. And yet Westbrook on the regular provides triple doubles. Heck, he's averaging a triple double on the season. And he's, you know, he's done that before, right? But Russell Westbrook, in case you don't know, even though he got off to a slow start by his standards to begin this season, remember he wasn't playing in the second games of back-to-backs, things like that. He dealt with injury too. Russell Westbrook now, as we speak on this Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast for the season, is averaging a triple-double for the Wizards. 21.8 points per game, 10.5 assists per game, 10.1 rebounds per game, also 1.3 steals per game. He's been good. You know, he hasn't been perfect. You know, he's, he's still he's still not a good three-point shooter. I'd like to see those turnovers come down. He's averaging 4.9 turnovers per game. But man, it's hard to complain too much about what the guy's done for you this year, and especially coming through as he did with that performance on Monday night. Wizards for the game shot 55.6% from the field, including 10 and 19 on threes. Wizards outscored the Pacers in the paint 74-58. Wizards have done a really good job in that department here lately. Westbrook obviously had a lot to do with that, uh, but he was not the only one. Rui Hachimura had a great game for the Wizards on Monday night. 26 points on 12 of 24 shooting, eight rebounds, and three assists versus three turnovers in 36 minutes, 25 seconds as a starter. I tell you, Hachimura's been very good lately. He had that terrible game a few weeks ago, that Friday night blowout loss to the Philadelphia 76ers at Capital One Arena, what was a 127-101 loss on March 12th. Hachimura, zero rebounds in 21 minutes as a starter in that game. But since then, it's been one good game after another. He's been racking up the points, racking up the boards, and 26 points, eight rebounds for Hachimura in this win over the Pacers on Monday night. So a great job by him. I'll tell you something else about the Wizards on Monday night. They out-rebounded the Pacers big time, 55-37. Now, it was not perfect for the Wiz, okay, because it never is. Uh, Wizards did give up 124 points. Pacers shot 47.3% from the field, including 12-30 on threes. Uh, Wizards just 12-18 of on free throws versus the Pacers going 24-33 on free throws. So it's not just that you miss your free throws. It's that it's that there was a big-time discrepancy in the game in terms of you getting to the line versus the Pacers getting to the line. So you didn't defend well. Uh, you didn't defend without fouling either. And you got scorched by multiple Pacers. The Virginia product, Malcolm Brogdon, was awesome for Indiana on Monday night. 5 of 10 on threes, 26 points, 8 assists versus no turnovers and four rebounds, and DeMontis Sabonis for the Pacers on Monday night, 35 points on 12 and 19 shooting, 11 rebounds, six assists, versus five turnovers, and two steals. There was another negative for the Wizards, too, and that is that Daniel Gafford got injured. Now, he was good for a second time in as many games with the Wiz, 11 points, four, six shooting, six rebounds, two blocks in just 14 minutes, 50 seconds off the bench, but he left the game in the fourth quarter due to a sprained right ankle, what appears to be a badly sprained right ankle. We'll see what the diagnosis ends up being. But Gafford, after the game, know this, was shown using crutches in a video sent out by the Wizards' official Twitter account. So this looked to be one of those nasty sprained ankles. And if you caught Scott Brooks' post-game virtual press conference, uh, Brooks did not seem overly optimistic about uh, Gafford being available anytime soon. But we'll see. We'll see. But if he's out for a while, that's a shame because he looked really good over his first two games with the Wizards off the Wiz, of course, trading for Gafford and also Chandler Hutchinson on NBA trade deadline day 
this past Thursday. Gafford is big. He's athletic. He's got this great wingspan. He's, in a lot of ways, what the Wizards have needed uh, in dire fashion this year, especially with Thomas Bryant out. And already, the guy has hurt two games into his tenure with the Wizards. Like, if that's not typical Wizards, I don't know what is. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly. Now, I mentioned Chandler Hutchison. He's barely played this entire year. He was a bust for the Chicago Bulls. He had been a DNP CD for the Wizards in his first game with the Wiz, the win over the Pistons on Saturday night. But Hutchison played on Monday night and played well. He was terrific, in fact, off the bench. Chandler Hutchison was. Two of three on three, six of eight on twos, 18 points and five rebounds in just 25 minutes, five seconds as a reserve. Hutchison had totaled 13 points the entire season prior to this game, comes off the bench for the Wiz on Monday night and does a really good job. So great to see that from Chandler Hutchison. You got good minutes from Denny Abdia. He started for a second straight game of having come off the bench in 22 of the previous 23 games, two or three on threes, 12 points, eight rebounds. And Haul Neto, who kind of comes and goes in terms of producing, but old Haul was good on Monday night, 15.7 of nine shooting, four rebounds in 19 minutes, six seconds off the bench. Look, we know the Wizards do this, right? They play really well. They'll string together some wins and then they're right back to stinking it up, okay? So I'm not here to all of a sudden start singing the praises of, all right, the Wizards have righted the ship. You know, here we go, uh, surging up the Eastern Conference standings. But it was nice to see this from the Wizards on Monday night. And again, Russell Westbrook, you really can't say enough about the performance that he had and the extent to which this guy has provided triple doubles. I mean, it really is remarkable. And and it feels so much better when the Wizards win. And again, when Westbrook does the triple double in an efficient manner, because I'm not a big believer in, yeah, you got a triple double, but you went five of 30 from the field. Like, what does that really mean at the end of the day? You know, triple doubles are based on counting stats. You, You want the guy to also be good when it comes to the rate stats, right? You want the shooting percentage to be acceptable. You want the three point percentage to be acceptable. You obviously don't want a lot of turnovers. Westbrook was good across the board. I mean, 21 assists for Westbrook in a game without Bradley Beal against a pretty decent Pacers team. Not a great Indiana team, but it's not some terrible Pacers team either. So Wiz now 17 and 28, up to being the fourth worst team in the Eastern Conference. So see, I guess the Wizards are surging up the Eastern Conference standings. They've gone from being the third worst team in the East to now the fourth worst team in the East. Five games behind the Boston Celtics and Miami Heat for the seventh and eighth spots in the conference. Wiz are in action again on Tuesday night, home of the Charlotte Hornets at seven, and then at the Detroit Pistons Thursday night at seven. The Wizards' schedule of having stiffened quite a bit in recent weeks is softening here a bit with these games against the Pistons and the Pacers. Even the Hornets on Tuesday night. Look, Charlotte is tied with the New York Knicks for fourth in the East, but the record for Charlotte is just 23 and 22. The Hornets are just a game above 500. That is the Eastern Conference in which, as we speak on this Tuesday, you have a mere five teams above 500. That's it. Five winning teams in the East. So a chance for the Wizards to maybe, possibly pick up some wins and maybe, possibly make this season semi-interesting again from a playoff positioning standpoint. We shall see. We don't count on too much from our Wiz, but it was nice to see what we saw on Monday night. And again, my God, what a performance by Russell Westbrook. Let's get to the Nationals for whom the exhibition season is over. Major League Baseball's Grapefruit League season and Cactus League season ending 
on Monday. No more of these meaningless spring training games. They are done. I know they are like a necessary evil. I do think spring training goes on for way too long. And, you know, you get sick and tired of seeing, okay, this guy did this, that guy did that, but what does it really mean? You know, the game ended in a tie or the game went to seven innings. I mean, the games mean nothing. We all understand that. It's time for meaningful baseball and meaningful baseball we shall have beginning on Thursday. Next up for the Nationals was to be a charter flight back to the D.C. area, then a day off on Tuesday so everyone can get settled in. Then you have a workout and a simulated game at Nationals Park on Wednesday, and then we are off and running opening day for the Nationals. It'll be opening night, 7.09 first pitch Thursday night at Nats Park. New York Mets in town, Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom. It's supposed to be brutal from a weather standpoint on Thursday, but that's just fine. That's just fine. Supposed to get better after that, and baseball, meaningful baseball, finally is coming. So the Nationals' final Grapefruit League game of the 2021 exhibition season, fittingly, does end up being a tie, a two-all tie with the Houston Astros on Monday afternoon. Steven Strasburg got the start. It was his fourth exhibition start of spring training, and he gave up two runs in five and two-thirds innings, three strikeouts versus four hits, uh, two doubles, two singles, and three walks on 98 pitches. So Strasburg appears good to go. I mean, the numbers that, the, the, uh, the number that matters the most there is the 98 pitches. Remember, he left his second exhibition start due to a left calf strain that we found out eventually was actually a ruptured tendon in his left calf, a ruptured plantaris tendon, but he appears to be just fine, should be good to go. We're not positive he'll start the Nationals' second game of the regular season. Remember, the Nets opening night, Thursday night, then off on Friday, then playing on Saturday and Sunday. So the Strasburg starts Saturday, the Strasburg starts Sunday. There is a thought that the Nats may want to split up the two lefties in the rotation. So the Nats could go Scherzer, Patrick Corbin, then Strasburg, or could go Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, and then Joe Ross, and then John Lester, right? The two lefties obviously being Corbin and Lester. So we'll see. But I, I, to me, I don't think the Nats need to get too caught up in that stuff. Honestly, what the Nets need to have is their best starting pitchers pitch as often as possible. So you want to set up your rotation that way. And especially early in the year, because the Nats schedule to begin the season is actually quite brutal. You know, this is kind of a sneaky thing with the Nats in this upcoming regular season. You know, I I know it's hard to like go too nuts over the importance of games in April, but there's a saying in baseball and it goes like this. You can't win a pennant in April, but you can lose a pennant in April. And take a listen to how the Nationals begin their regular season. Three games against the Mets at Nationals Park. Three games against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Three games at the Los Angeles Dodgers. Three games at the St. Louis Cardinals. Your first 12 games of the season are against four of the presumed powers in the National League this season. Mets, Braves, Dodgers, Cardinals. You know, what you don't want is to get off to like a three and nine start. You want your best horses out there. And so if starting Steven Strasburg in game number two means that you'll be able to start Steven Strasburg an extra time during this first 12-game run through the schedule, uh, and it would, in theory anyway, uh, heck yeah, do that. So I would hope that that's of top of mind for the Nationals. This is not an easy way to begin their 2021 regular season. But good that Strasburg appears to be good to go. It's obviously going to be such a big year for Steven Strasburg, right? He barely pitched in 2020, made just two starts, pitched just five innings due to the carpal tunnel neuritis uh, in his right hand, had to undergo season-ending surgery last August 26. You know, Strasburg revealing in one of these Zoom spring training press conferences back in February that his symptoms with the injury featured numbness in his right hand. You know, so this, this was 
you know, kind of uh, the kind of thing where you're like, oh, that's not good. But all signs are that the carpal tunnel neuritis is a thing of the past, as is this uh, ruptured tendon in the left calf, or at the very least, the left calf issue is not something that's hindering him. And the Nats need Strasburg to get back to where he was at in 2019, when he was durable, when he actually led the National League in innings pitched in the regular season, and of course, when he won World Series MVP. Now, there are some other injury updates uh, we want to get into here as we talk Nationals on the podcast. So Juan Soto dealing with a right calf cramp. Starling Castro, who is set to be the Nationals' everyday third baseman, uh, dealing with a mild left hamstring strain. Both guys appear on track for opening day. Each guy took five at-bats in a simulated game on Monday morning. And barring the unforeseen, we will see Soto, we will see Castro on Monday night. The bad injury news, though, is this. Davey Martinez on Monday did say that Will Harris will be beginning the season on the injured list due to needing to build his arm back up. So, you know, I guess it's not terrible news in that, you know, his injury issue has popped back up, but he is not going to be available to begin the regular season. Remember with Will Harris, March 13th felt numbness in his fingers while throwing in a B game. March 19th, we're told that Harris has been diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. But then Davey, this past Friday night, March 26th, revealed that a procedure on Harris had revealed that he had not had a blood clot in the right arm, nor had Harris had the more serious thoracic outlet syndrome, and in fact could be back pitching for the Nats sooner rather than later. Now, it's not going to be sooner sooner, but hopefully, you know, he begins the season on that 10-day injured list, and then he's back with the Nats after that. Nats are going to need Harris. They need bullpen depth. You know, it's been a shaky spring training season for the Nationals when it comes to their relievers. And that brings us to this. I thought we could do this now. With the exhibition season done, okay, who did well and who didn't do well? Now, what any of this means, you know, your guess is as good as mine. But it is worth noting, you had some guys who killed it and you had some guys who really struggled. So we'll start with the bad and then we'll get to the good, okay? So the bad, you know, as Steve Spurrier would say, the not very good. Not very good. Yes, thank you, ball coach. So you start, of course, with Carter Keyboom who struggled mightily, 49 plate appearances, a batting average of 133, an on-base percentage of 204, a slugging percentage of 222, optioned to AAA Rochester on Saturday. We talked about this at length on Monday's podcast. This is a mess with the Nationals have at third base. They did not get any true Carter Keyboom insurance in the offseason. It is going to be Castro as the everyday third baseman, which means it is going to be Josh Harrison as the everyday second baseman. This is not ideal. This is not what you wanted for various reasons, including now that it may well be that Carter Keyboom is a bust. So he had a really bad exhibition season. Juan Soto had a very bad exhibition season. 38 plate appearances, 182 batting average, 289 on base percentage, 182 slugging percentage. His slugging percentage ended up being the same as his batting average. Not supposed to work that way. Uh, Davey Martinez last Wednesday in a Zoom press conference did attribute Soto's struggles to his timing. Look, he's Juan Soto. He's a freak of nature. He's been from another planet over his first three major league seasons. Am I worried about Juan Soto having a bad 2021 season? No, not really. But you do have to understand he had a very bad Grapefruit League season. And if he gets off to slow start in the regular season, you're going to have a sense as to why. He's never really slumped, though. That's the thing with Soto. Like, so with him, I think you do say, hey, track record. Don't get too worried about that. And speaking of track record, Trey Turner 
had a bad 2021 exhibition season. 57 plate appearances, batting average of just 170, on-base percentage of 316, but a slugging percentage of 213. Again, woeful. Neither Soto nor Turner hit for any kind of power in the exhibition season. Trey has been very good offensively the last few years. He was quantifiably the best hitting shortstop in the majors in 2020. It remains a crime that he did not win the Silver Slugger Award for National League shortstops for 2020. Do I think Trey Turner's going to have a bad 2021? No, I do not, but he did not have a very good exhibition season. Uh, also, out of the bullpen, Brad Hand, the Nats' top acquisition in terms of relievers this past offseason, he had a rough exhibition season. Now, he pitched pretty well on Monday afternoon, but Hand still finishes Grapefruit League play over six and two-thirds innings with an ERA of 12-15 and a whip of 270. Not good. Now, Hand has been good for years, had a very good 2020 for the Cleveland Indians uh, over the previous five seasons, 2016 through 2020, has a track record of being good. 270 ERA, 12.2 strikeouts per nine innings for Hand over the last five years. So again, track record. Do I think Hand is going to be brutal this coming season? No, I don't, but he did not have a good exhibition season. And then Daniel Hudson, who did not have a good 2020 for the Nats, also has had a bad 2021 Grapefruit League season. Gave up three homers in four innings over his first four appearances. Finishes with an ERA of 11-12 over five and two-thirds innings. So those were the guys who struggled, but here now are the guys who did well. And this is the good news. You actually had quite a few guys who did well in exhibition play. Ryan Zimmerman killed it. Ryan Zimmerman was like an alien over these last few weeks. Just 29 plate appearances for Zim. He actually didn't play that much in Grapefruit League play. And yet, over those 29 plate appearances, he totaled a team-high tying six home runs. He had a 481 batting average, a 517 on base percentage, a slugging percentage of 1,222. That's excellent for an OPS. That was just Zim's slugging percentage in exhibition play. What it means, we do not know, but man, did he kill it in these exhibition games. I mentioned Zim having a team high tying six homers. The guy with whom Zim was tied was Josh Bell, the Nats' other primary first baseman. He hit a team high tying six homers. He over 57 plate appearances, 383 batting average, 456 on base percentage, 872 slugging percentage. We talked about these two guys on Monday's podcast. It is exciting to think about what the Nats could end up getting here in terms of overall production out of the first base position from Bell and Zimmerman, right? The platoon sets up very simply. Bell versus righty pitching, Zim versus lefty pitching. You know, Zim presumably as a late inning defensive replacement because Bell is not a good defensive first baseman. But man, these two guys offensively could end up combining for some really nice numbers. Victor Robles had a very good exhibition season. And honestly, out of all of the Nationals position players who did well, I think you take the most out of Robles having had a very good Grapefruit League season. First of all, he had the most plate appearances on the Nats. Team high, 62 plate appearances, right? Davey has been utilizing Robles in that leadoff spot and that number one spot in the batting order. We've been waiting on Robles to blossom as a batter. He's been underwhelming as a hitter over the last few seasons, but Robles in spring training play, 296 batting average, 371 on base percentage. That's terrific. And a 574 slugging percentage. Kyle Schwarber had a good exhibition season, right? Schwarber had a bad 2020. Nat signed him to a one-year contract. You know he's not going to kill it with the glove. So if Schwarber's going to play for you, he's got to hit well. And he did hit well during Grapefruit League play. 59 plate appearances, 
just a 250 batting average, but a 390 on base percentage, 583 slugging percentage. Starling Castro did have a good exhibition season. This kind of gets lost with the Carter Keboom saga, but Castro over 35 plate appearances, 303 batting average, 343 on base, 515 slugging. And when it comes to the bullpen, Luis Avilan pitched his way onto the Nats. Luis Avilan is a journeyman lefty. The Nats on Sunday did select Avilan's contract. Nats signed Avilan to a minor league deal this past December. Now, like I said, he's a journeyman. He's bounced around. He's going into his age 31 season. He has pitched for five teams over the last four years, 2017 through 2020. He's been all over the place, Luis Avilan is. The Nats are set to become his sixth team in five seasons. That's saying something. And if you just look at Avilan's overall numbers, he's really not been good over the last two seasons, but he has been very good against lefties. And when you think about the National League East, right, what do you think about? Freddie Freeman, lefty. Bryce Harper, lefty. Michael Conforto, lefty. Jeff McNeil, lefty. Dominic Smith, lefty. A lot of good lefty batters in the National League East. So you need guys who can shut down lefties. It's part of the appeal of Brad Hand. He's a lefty, and that's why Avilan made the team. In addition, though, to Avilan having had a very good run in exhibition play, just two runs allowed in nine into third innings, 10 strikeouts, two for Avilan over those nine into third innings, uh, did give up eight hits and four walks. So some bad, but also some good for the Nationals in exhibition play and the real meaningful games get going in just a few days. Meantime, for the Orioles, their rotation is set. We talked on Monday's podcast about the top three in the Orioles rotation having been set. John Means as the number one, Matt Harvey as the number two, Bruce Zimmerman as the number three, manager Brandon Hyde on Monday making it official that Jorge Lopez will be the Orioles' fourth starter, or at the very least will start the Orioles' fourth game of the regular season, and Dean Kramer will start the Orioles' fifth game of the regular season. See, I I do think it's worth making that distinction because just because you're starting the season with these five guys in your rotation doesn't mean that these guys stick in your five-man rotation, okay? I mean, we know the Orioles are probably going to be brutal once again, and it's not like you're looking at Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz in terms of making up this rotation. You know, like I've said in the past, this is not when the Orioles had the four 20-game winners, Jim Palmer, Dave McNally, Mike Cuellar, and Pat Dobson. This is not that with the O's, okay? (laughs) This is John Means, Matt Harvey, Bruce Zimmerman, Jorge Lopez, and Dean Kramer. So yeah, it could change as time goes on. Speaking of Zimmerman, by the way, so he had had a very good exhibition season, but he in the Orioles' final game of the exhibition season, what was an 8-3 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays on Monday afternoon, he got rocked. He gave up three homers in allowing seven runs in four and a third innings for whatever that's worth. But yes, Means, Harvey, Zimmerman, Lopez, and Kramer, that's what you're looking at for the Orioles' rotation to begin the season. It is disappointing that Keegan Aiken did not make the rotation. Keegan Aiken optioned to AAA Norfolk on Friday evening. Uh, Wade LeBlanc is not in the rotation, though he is with the team. Uh, the O's on Friday evening also announcing the signing of LeBlanc to a one-year major league contract for the 2021 season. We talked on Friday how LeBlanc on Thursday uh, had been granted his release to become a free agent. He had wanted that. He was granted that. You know, you weren't certain if he was going to be brought back, but it was said that there was a possibility the O's could still re-sign LeBlanc and 
they ended up resigning him. So, you know, Wade LeBlanc figures to be like your long man out of the bullpen, maybe make some spot starts, or maybe he ends up starting quite a few games. Look, it's not just that the Orioles are bad. We know that the Orioles now are all in on analytics. So they're not married to, we have to have five starters throughout the year. You're going to see the Orioles use openers. You're going to see the Orioles go with tandem starts, bullpen starts, things like that. You know, like I've discussed in baseball, it's becoming less and less about starters and relievers and more and more about just having pitchers, you know, and so how you're deployed as a pitcher can vary. Maybe you start this game, maybe you come in relief in that game, but you're just here to get outs. You know, you are an out getter at the end of the day. I think that's how the Orioles very much look at a lot of this stuff. And it's probably how this is going to play out, uh, given what is probably going to end up happening with the Orioles this season. And that is them not being very good again. But, you know, I think the Orioles are an interesting team to follow. Like, if you are an Orioles fan, there is reason to be checked in. There is reason to keep track of what's going on because there are a good number of promising young players on the ball club, especially when it comes to position players. And you've got some highly regarded pitching prospects in the minors. Now, they're not up just yet, but people like D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez, they offer hope right now when it comes to the position players. You know, people like Ryan Mountcastle and Austin Hayes and Anthony Santander and DJ Stewart, though he's been dealing with his left hamstring injury, they offer hope right now at the major league level to say nothing of what you have going on in the minors, right, with the likes of Adley Rutschman and Heston Kerstad. So rotation for the Orioles is set. The pitching staff will not include King Felix. The Orioles on Monday announcing that Felix Hernandez had requested and been granted his release to become a free agent. So ultimately, the three retreads who the Orioles are trying to rehab, the three guys who, as I've talked about, you were trying to fix and then flip, Matt Harvey, Wade LeBlanc, Felix Hernandez. Harvey and LeBlanc end up making the ball club. Harvey ends up making the rotation. Heck, Harvey ends up being your number two starter. Uh, but King Felix does not make it. Felix Hernandez signed to a minor league deal back in February. Remember, he dealt with discomfort in his right elbow in his final exhibition start all the way back on March 16th. And it was ironic because he actually had looked pretty good. He tossed a perfect first inning with a couple of strikeouts, but then left the game due to this right elbow discomfort. We're still not entirely sure what to make of the right elbow discomfort, like, i.e., is he going to need Tommy John surgery, or is this just, you know, a rest situation, and we'll see where things go. But he ran out of time to make this team, and if you're the Orioles, you know, you're not really in the business of trying to uh, work with King Felix and uh, get him just right for the 2021 season. Like, this was, hey, minor league contract, if you can rediscover some things, we'd love to have you on board, and like I keep saying, we'll fix you, and then we'll flip you. But Hernandez, you know, he's dealing with the right elbow discomfort. He's not been very good for years now. You know, it's it's very easy when you hear the name Felix Hernandez to think about King Felix, American League Cy Young Award, etc. Felix Hernandez over the last three seasons, 2017-2019, with the Seattle Mariners, a 542 ERA. He did not pitch in 2020. He opted out with the Atlanta Braves uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So no King Felix rotation is set for the Orioles. They begin their season Thursday afternoon at the Boston Red Sox, a 2-10 first pitch. O's begin their season with a six-game road trip, three games at Boston, then three games at the New York Yankees, then three home games against the Red Sox. Orioles, believe it or not, not the worst over-under win total 
in the majors. I mean, it always depends on where you shop for this stuff, but actually the Pittsburgh Pirates are the consensus worst team in the majors in terms of the over-under win total. 59 and a half is what you'll find the Pittsburgh Pirates over-under win total to be in some shops. I've even seen it at 58 and a half. Orioles are more in like that 63 and a half territory. Colorado Rockies are in that same territory as well. So yeah, bad, but not the worst in the league. At least you can say that if you're an O's fan. All right, that will do it for you and me. Keep the feedback coming. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word about the podcast. Have a special guest for you for Wednesday's show. Looking forward to sharing that with you. Until then, have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'm a little bit more process oriented.